I don't believe that the famous story of the woman caught in adultery was written by John in his gospel in his earliest writing, like when he wrote it. And that might come as a shock. And that's why when I was preaching this morning, I used it as a story and not as the same weight as scripture. That's my explanation, and uh, we're going to take that whole idea and we're going to expand it out. I got Ryan Vincent in the studio with me, and this is actually recorded in advance so that as you're listening to it, you probably have just heard a message about forgiveness trying to deal with this, and so you've got some questions. Why didn't Jim preach the the text from the text? Um, And he preached the idea from a number of other very reliable texts. Uh, So I hope this podcast actually is going to help answer some of those things. And ultimately, our goal is for you to believe even more in the goodness and the greatness and the reliability of God's word. Enjoy. So when you are doing the Lord's Prayer, do you... Do you end with, and I mean, I mean, personally, do you end with for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Yes or no? Yes. Is that scripture? Eight tenths of it is. Eight tenths. Oh, the whole prayer. No, no, no. Just that last. The 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 last last line. No, none of it is. Matt didn't write it. I don't. Luke didn't record it either. Okay. But you still say it. Mm Mm-hmm. Why? Because it just rolls off the tongue really <laughs> nicely. <laughs> no, and honestly, I, I really appreciate that because it's it's interesting. I've gone through different stages in my life, and one of them is, um, man, I'm going to stand by Scripture. And if it's not Scripture, then I'm not going to. And then I began to realize, no, there are books like even pseudepigraphal books, mm-hmm. which need to be read and understood, and apocryphal books, which need to be read. And pseudepigra- pseudepigraphical books are books that are falsely, yeah. false writings, which does, I mean, they really are writings, but they're not attributed to the people that they're attributed to, and they mm-hmm. don't stand in the line with Scripture. Apocryphal writings are not quite pseudepigraphical, meaning false writings. Yep. But they are um, historical events that don't don't contain the same historical, or sorry, the same theological and historical reliability that yeah. the Scriptures provide. But they still provide benefit yeah like an example of a pseudepigraphal document is the gospel of thomas thomas definitely didn't write it it's not in any way shape or form saying the same story as the the other four gospels the the real four gospels so you read it as a historical artifact it's interesting yeah but it's it's not it's not authoritative and it's certainly not reliable and it helps us and here's what i love about it and we'll see how this applies to what we're really going to be talking about here in a moment by by seeing the the texts that were not included by un, by and having them, mm-hmm. right? This is why we're not talking about burning or censoring. We're about rightly diagnosing and then appropriately um, putting them in their context. Yes, which is Thomas helps us understand the reliability of Matthew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I love the like the the popular like cable channel exposés on the lost gospel of thomas like it's like it's not lost i have it on my computer it's just not very good i've read it it's not yeah it's just not matthew it's just, yeah it's not the yeah. same don't act like it's we've been burying it. it it's it's not talked about because it's not good yeah and that's why i would even encourage i remember uh, I, all of my instructors both the undergraduate graduate and then even further really do strongly encourage that we are aware of competing ideas 
Um, and even to understand, William Lane Craig loved to point this out, that by seeing how the tradition is altered and mm-hmm. is manipulated helps us understand what the, what the reality is. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying we can't understand reality without it, i.e. the truth about what happened um, in the life of Jesus Christ from the four Gospels that, that are scripture, that yep. are canon. Um, but the other ones really do. I mean, I, I love this as, as he does a, a phenomenal explanation of how we can trust particularly the resurrection accounts, mm-hmm. is that he says we can, by seeing the, uh, the development of new ideas, of mythical ideas, we can literally see how and when that happens, which proves that there is a distinction yeah. between an, uh, a historical account and then a mythologized account. Yeah. And so it, 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 it literally does. It brings credibility to the real. And I think that's really helpful. I do too. I think contrast is the mother of clarity. And, and I think, um, you know, it's it, the old adage in some of my um, seminary courses was when it came to like textual reliability, like if you, if you look at um, uh, people that are trained to suss out counterfeit money, um, they they spend enough time with the real stuff that whenever they, the fake stuff comes through, they can just tell this is different. Yeah. And yep. so it's not as though they, they ignore the fake stuff. They actually want to identify, you know, a, a counterfeit $100 bill, but they do so by spending the majority of their time with, with legitimate $100 bills. And then um, when, when you have a conflicting, you know, issue, oh, I can clearly tell this is out of line with this. And so we're not afraid of the counterfeits, but we are trained to detect them. Yeah, in a sense, and I think that textual questions kind of fall along the same lines. That's the benefit. So, there are, there are uh, parts of verses that are gone, and so I really want to encourage you to watch or listen to this podcast. I don't think we're filming them anywhere. No, I don't see a camera in the uh, in the studio. So, uh, listen to this podcast and um, either be prepared to listen to it again and have a Bible open. Uh, if you're driving, don't recommend you probably pull up the Bible, although some of you would. Um, but we're not recommending it. We're not, but man, that would be a way to go. How huh. did he die? Well, yeah, he he was he was reading his Lord's words man. before he hit that pole. Blessed be the name of the Lord. <laughs> um, but I, I I think it would be helpful. Uh, and again, to go back and to look at some of these. So Matthew six thirteen is the one that we've just been referencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look in your Bible, you'll see Matthew six thirteen, and you'll see Matthew six fourteen. Um, and yet, if you look at, uh, I'm looking at the CSB, but virtually every translation that you have, if you're not in the King James Version, would actually just end with this, which the, the final statement is, um, and deliver us from the evil one. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of the end. And then from there, it's, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And if you look at the end of that verse, verse 13, it'll literally give you some early manuscripts have or something that does say early some manuscripts have for thine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever and ever amen and it's edited out but you'll find it in your footnotes so technically it's in your bible if your bible is the book that you have in your hands but if you mean by bible what we believe the original documents to be matthew's account mark's account luke's account and then we have copies of that that have then been also translated so there's a difference between there as well um, it is in your Bible. It's actually found in the footnotes. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the footnotes because it helps us see that there are um, variations. So here you have not a missing verse, but a missing part of a verse. And there's mm-hmm. a number of those throughout your Bible. Um, one of the things that will not really address directly, but I think that there'll be, we, sh- we should probably maybe address this here. 
So when 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 we say that there are missing parts of verses and there are missing verses, mm-hmm. um, that might make a number of people nervous. So then, how can we speak passionately and authoritatively about this word? How would you answer that question for someone? I would say that, you know, like another example is John chapter five verse four. It's not in your Bible. It's in the footnotes. So John chapter five actually skips from verse three to verse five. Um, and and what, I, what I appreciate about them putting it down in the footnotes is the, the translation committees are not trying to hide what they've yeah, done. They're, not trying to trick they're actually being very obvious and drawing attention to the fact that, you know, with footnotes or in the case of another section in John and then a section at the end of Mark where they literally leave the what I believe non-scriptural part, they'll leave it in there and put brackets around it and like draw all this attention to it. I think it's because they, they are so confident in their scholarship that they're okay with showing them the long division yeah, as they do yeah, their math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then if someone were to say, okay, well, John 5, 4 came to be unreliable and uh, we find out the same thing about John 7 into 8 and then maybe Mark 16, how can we trust anything? I'd say, one, that is... Uh, an, you, you just can't live life that way. Doesn't it's work an like unnecessary that. leap. It is. So yeah. you, you've taken yeah. it to an, an, an end that is unjustified. But I would say, ask questions about why those those sections were removed. And I think that they were removed because we find things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and other um, codices, which we can maybe talk about that here in a second. We find more and more manuscripts that are older and for us, the older, it, it's kind of like the opposite of contemporary society. The older, the better in the yeah, biblical world. Yep, yep. That I mean that puts us closer to the original autographs, the original you know documents written by the apostles and 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 the the evangelists there, and the original copyists. And so you, the older it is, the less time the the text has to have been corrupted. And I think our our textual critics and critic is not a negative term in this yeah. sense. It's a yeah. textual analyst is probably yeah. a better way of thinking about it. Because we the word the word critical, which really comes from the Greek word krino, you can probably even hear it. Yeah. It means to judge. Yeah. And so again, even that is a negative term today. It's so like discernment. Discernment. So that's why, you know, the word analyst I yeah. promise you, in a little while, analyst will be a negative thing. We shouldn't, sure. anal- we shouldn't analyze things. And I'm going, <laughs> no, we really should analyze things. But yeah. it's the spirit with which we're critical. It's the spirit with which we analyze that yeah. is the problem, not, the, but not the, the analysis itself. The analysts who are trained in these ancient languages and who have access to these really priceless documents in, in a lot of these museums, they're looking at the information ahead in front of them and they're and they will come back and they'll basically create what's called a critical edition of the Greek New Testament. So they basically say this is as close as we can get to what the New Testament was in its original sense. And, and by then, that they mean the what well, they're called the autographs, yeah, which are if you could if you could imagine Matthew just finished compiling, Luke just finished compiling, Luke's gospel. And that that one there, the one he wrote or had written under his supervision because mm-hmm. um, Paul had letters written for him. Yep. That document right there, that's called an autograph. Yep, and then they would be sent to their recipients, and then if they're, you know, it wasn't cheap to to make copies in the ancient world because it was all done by hand by professional scribes. Then as they're starting to make copies and they're circulated throughout the ancient world, then you start to have a collection of what's known as manuscripts. So think of photocopies of an original copy. Yes, and they'll actually even use the terms facsimiles. Yes, facsimiles, yep. um, and anyway, they'll say that whenever they came they came out with the Nestle and Alon 29th edition recently, 
Um, I actually think the 30th edition might be coming out soon. But they they basically have, have pulled all together the oldest possible reliable manuscripts they have and said, this is what John wrote. And then all your English Bible translations. This trans- is what we believe to the best of our ability mm-hmm. by looking at, because we don't expect you to have all these documents. We have looked at every every word in order of everything, and we'll look at John, right? Yeah. So uh, we, we've looked at all of the documents, and to the best of our ability, we believe John 5, 3, we go back to that yeah. one, John 5, 3 was this in the autograph, which we don't have. But we've got all of the copies, and, and they're literally thousands upon thousands of these. Close to 30,000 New Testament manuscripts or fragments. We've looked at all of them. Mm-hmm. We've evaluated all of them. And even the spelling of every word, mm-hmm. and we believe this here is what John five three originally said. And then your ESB or CSB ESV English Bible Translation Committees will take that text that they now have in the Greek as as good as it can possibly be, and will translate it into English for us. Well, and and actually, what they do is they'll say, and by the way, Nestle Aland aren't the only ones who are doing it. We UBS. also know there's 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 another another textual edition known as the UBS. And so they have that. And then some will even say, okay, listen, we, we don't believe that Nestle Elan totally got that right. So yeah. the the translators mm-hmm. of a translation are free to not only use the textual editions, but to bypass yeah. sometimes the textual editions and to go to a specific reading from a document. Yeah, and they'll bring in textual analysts. You know, um, a couple of years ago, Scott had the great fortune, I'm still jealous, to spend time in a class, oh, yeah. a seminar Trimper. with a man named Trimper Longman yep. III. And my joke about Trimper is when you name your son Trimper Longman the Third, you have pigeonholed his entire career into being an academic. I think he's going to be a Bible scholar. How? <laughs> I called him Trimper. <laughs> like he's his either, daddy he's and his granddaddy. Do, he's either not going to do well or he's going to be amazing. Yes, and he is a I phenomenal know Hebrew Trimper. scholar. Have you ever met a Trimper? I've never met his dad or grandfather, but there's oh, two other ones. Oh, that's, I guess I never even thought about the third. But he's a he's an amazing Hebrew scholar, and Scott got to spend some time with him. And he was teaching actually on some wisdom literature, so Job, um, uh, the Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And he's literally teaching from just random English translations because he's got pretty much the text memorized in Hebrew. <laughs> um, but anyway, what these analysts will tell you is they'll say, okay, what we have based on the amount of documentation that went into this and all the decisions that had to be made and the veracity of those decisions, they're, they're legitimately, we're not making leaps of faith. This is what it would have said. They're like, yeah, your English Bibles are 99.8% accurate yeah, yeah. to the original reading. And so, so my original question, which I, I don't think we got there the long way, I think we just have to explain it and it's going to take time, is that you don't, I, I understand why you're concerned about the reliability. I understand the fact that John 5.4 or the longer version, longer, uh, the longer verse, ma- the rest of six, Matthew 6.13, right? Call it B. Yeah. The, the reason why you're concerned that it's gone is, is, is justifiable. Now I want you to think through, is it a sign that we've really done our work? So in, in a nutshell, though, the, the reason why it, it, it got complicated is because we added things like chapters and verse divisions mm-hmm. before we had, uh, and we still don't even have all the evidence, right? Yeah. And th- this is the beauty of it. I think we have enough that definitely we can figure out what's going on. Um, but, I mean, we could find something. There was, if we were to go back in time, literally, go if you just keep going back, 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 back in time, it was they didn't have... Um, as guys are making what are called critical editions, which is yeah. compiling all the all the manuscripts that they have, 
that, that happened a lot in the 1500s. Yeah. Guys like Froben and Erasmus, they're trying to come up with a critical edition. They're trying to do these things. So they can only use the documents that they have. And if you're yeah. in Germany in the 1500s, you don't have all the documents. And yeah. there are some that are going to be discovered. And we're going to talk about two of those here in a second. But they're not going to be discovered for another 200 and some years. Yeah. So you've got the best that you can, which, by the way, you're still going to be 98.8. Yeah. Or 90, 97.2 or something like that. So you're clearly in the ballpark. So we're talking mm -hmm. about the minutia, which just shows the desire and the passion mm -hmm. for us to get as, bo as close as we can. And I also think it's a sign that says, but with humility... Sure. We need to acknowledge the fact that it's different. And and by the way, and I and I, I mean this with all respect, there are a group of individuals that that worship that believe that their their document is not just without error, but I mean they're talking about like it's perfect. Yeah. And that is Islam. Yeah. And they don't consider the, the <laughs> I thought copy you were going to say the King James only people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, yes, Islam well, even more believe, so. Yeah, but here's what's weird is we we actually believe and this is have to be another podcast. We believe the Bible is without error. I do. We don't mean it in the same way that a Muslim would talk about the Quran. Yeah, I always explain it and it's got, it's got a little bit of shock value and that's usually my intent, but I always say the Bible is perfect. It has no errors. Um but none of the Bibles in this room or that. Yes. And then I have to kind of go and explain what I mean about the difference between a translation and an autograph, but it usually leads to some fun discussion. Sure. But that's not how Muslims viewed the Quran. And honestly, I've had a number of Muslim friends in my life still do. I've told them, I said, you know, listen, I know this, this doesn't, this doesn't um, finalize it as either true or not true, but I'm just telling you, I have an easier time coming to grips with the fact that God has handed down to us the Bible in the way that he has, which doesn't seem like magic or hocus pocus, or I don't have to leave my brain at the door because I just have a hard time believing. Not that God can, but the evidence doesn't seem to be that God did yeah. make this perfect. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And I even, when I, one of the, I'm so grateful for Brother Bowles, who was my Greek professor, and he just said one time, You do know the church is perfect, but not perfect. You do know that like Christians are perfect, but not perfect. Talking about their sanctified, but yeah. ongoing sanctification. Why would you expect the text, which I think it is more perfect, mm -hmm. right? Why would you expect the text to be any different? Again, the text that we have. Yeah. And I just thought, you know, that really is true. Like the Lord uses imperfect things by the power of his spirit. Like only God is. And God's word is. Yeah. Hear me. God's word is. And what we have in the Bible is clearly God's word, but it actually can keep us from an accusation that some people make against us, when I say us, I mean kind of conservative Christians, is that we worship the Bible. Yeah. And I really want to say, no, I don't. I don't worship the Bible. Like, I don't, I don't think the Bible has that kind of um, reverential awe. Mm -hmm. But I do believe the Word of God yes. is. Yes. And then this becomes, in, in essence, a little bit of a shadow of the image. Mm -hmm. The image is perfect. Mm -hmm. The shadow is perfect-ish. And yep. therefore, it's reliable and trustworthy and true. And so I value it and I build my life upon it. But I'm not in love with what I believe Matthew 6, 13 said in its entirety or even in its limitedness. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go, no, I like something that is beyond that, that is truly good. And it, it, I think it adds a layer of not just authenticity that Jim perceives, which some may not perceive, but it adds, I believe, a layer of humility yeah. To be able to say these words are meant to point me to something that is greater still. Yeah. I mean, and 
how much more as English readers? I mean, we're not even we're, like any of you who have who have ever studied a second language know that there is no perfect way to translate yeah. from one language into another, given all the idioms <laughs> and metaphors and just kind of cultural memory. And so, so no matter what what you have in your hand, unless it's a Greek critical edition, yeah, is a shadow of something. Yeah, and right? even unless the Greek King James critical version editions only. in my office are still modern font. They're not written in all capitals. <laughs> there's spaces between the words, thank God. Yes, and, yeah, exactly. But that, like, Punctuation, which th- would not have been in the originals. And uh, and so, yeah, we're and, – and yet, I trust it, yeah. and I trust my CSB. And so, even when I sometimes feel like I, I'm permitted to be um, – uh, to, to to walk around with the hubris to say I don't like how the CSB translated that I even have to say that with a degree of humility oh, no, because yeah. men and women much more brilliant than I made a decision different than I did totally and, and I'm allowed to disagree with them yep and I better do it with recognition all of those people also led by the spirit um, actually do have IQs and experience that is greater than mine yep. doesn't necessarily make them right so yep. confident humility a good mm-hmm. a good Christian attribute. So here's the crux. Um, there are two major texts. So not a verse here and a verse there, but there are two major texts. Chunks. Chunks of scripture. Um, uh, and, 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 and basically, we're, we're going to look primarily at the John text, which is John chapter 7, verses 53 through John chapter 8, verse 11. Very famous story. Maybe even the most, I would even say outside of like resurrection accounts or birth yeah. accounts, it's probably the most famous story. It's also love. a favorite story of a lot of people. So I just had just had coffee with, with a friend of mine, Chad, and um, we were talking. And I said, yeah, I got to get back to the church and do a podcast. And uh, he said, oh, what are you, what are you been talking about? And I said, well, you know, we're in God, John's gospel. And so I got a story coming up in a couple of weeks on the woman caught in adultery. And he stopped me and went, that is my favorite story of Jesus. And I went, uh-oh. <laughs> but, I mean, I explained it. And he, he I mean, he's, he's very, he, you know, he's very learned. So he understands yeah. this. And so he was like, oh, no, no, no. I know it's still one of my favorites. I said, dude, I'm, it's allowed to be one of your favorites. Well, it seems like, as we were talking before the podcast, it seems like some of the guys that chose to put brackets around it still call it one of their favorites. They draw these strange <laughs> no, conclusions. Exactly. Some, some, again, people much smarter than us. So, uh, you know, here you have, and if you, if you look at in your, in your Bibles, it literally, it literally says, because it wants to make sure that you understand um, as you're reading it why it's done. It says, literally in mind, so I'm looking at the CSB, the earliest MSS is sense for manuscripts. Yeah. The earliest MS would be manuscript. MSS would be manuscripts. Yeah. So the earliest manuscripts, and by that they're predominantly meaning two very famous documents that were found in the 1700s by a, a kind of a archaeologist-ish person mm-hmm. um, with the last name of Tischendorf, uh, basically finds two documents. I one, wonder where he's from. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> you you have. Uh, Codex, which is a, a book, yeah. Codex Sinaiticus, which was found at a monastery near Mount Sinai, yeah. and then Codex Vaticanus, which actually is now uh, on on display at the Vatican. So one was by the location which it was found, and the other one is the location for which it is held, which is kind of a common way in which they would label manuscripts. They date Sinaiticus to the 300s? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me this. Late threes, early fours? I'm on it. It's right in there. Okay, there we go. We're, we'll get you the exact dates. But those two came out, and they came out after some pretty important critical editions came out. Oh, I know what. I, we, we started saying this, and we got derailed. Um, so one of the problems is, is that the reason why you have to have these brackets like here is that the added 
chapters and verse divisions came after uh, you know the, when when these critical editions came into place. They, they said, okay, we need to be able to reference these. So let's talk about chapters and verses. And so the, they're not in the originals. And so they added them. And so they are, in a sense, uh, codifying them or solidifying them. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they go, uh-oh, I, I think we made a mistake. We solidified something yeah. and we added the verses to it. So do we go back and change every other verse in that chapter? Or what, what, what do we do? How do we handle that? And then it becomes complicated because you've got sermons that are referencing things. You've got other documents that are referencing things. So imagine what would happen if we just decided that, uh, say, an earlier section in, in Jesus, a very good section in, say, Matthew's God, so the, the Beatitudes, right? Let's say we were to f- discover that the Beatitudes weren't in the original. Okay, it'd be shocking. It'd be I'd be sad, all of those things. <laughs> now what do we do with all of those sermons that reference it? Well, we can't just cover it up. So in the end, we, we've got to figure out a way yeah. to let people see, here's what we thought, here's what we did. Yeah. It's easier to remove and just say our numbers aren't perfect than to do this massive shift. Exactly. Which you actually get, you do run into one time when they did the shift, you run into this with the numbering of the Psalms, that there's yes. there's been different ways of numbering them. Are there 149 or 150? And it's like at some point, I'm like, I don't know which one you mean. Well, in this verse one, the subscript, which is the... Of David. Of David, yeah. yeah. So there's there's lots of different things that are happening in our Bibles. And by the way, I, I hope you enjoy this stuff at some level, or I hope that it, it builds confidence in your uh, trustworthiness, in or your, your trust of a trustworthy scripture. So I, I would tell you that I, I don't think I've ever had the inclination of, I wish our, our Bible translators, I wish our uh, publishing companies would clean this up. I don't want them to clean it up. Yeah. I want them to footnote it yeah. so that we can continue to have integrity when we talk about it. Yep. So um, we're in John's gospel, mm-hmm. and uh, I will in a few weeks, I think, because I really want the text, but we're supposed to be doing John seven fifty through 3 to 11, which is the woman caught in adultery, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to be using the text, although I will be telling the story, not reading the story, telling the story. And, and again, for two reasons. One of them is is I, I want our Congress, I want Sunnybrook, I want them to know that we really believe in the authoritative nature of Scripture and we really believe that there are certain things that we can trust and I really want to be able to, um, with integrity, walk through what, the, what John's Gospel teaches. And I want you to know that there are some verses like John 5, 4, which is missing because I don't think it's in the originals. And then this one here, which is, I believe, missing from the originals. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about the idea of forgiveness because that is true. And I do believe the story does line up with some great scholars use this as an example. I want to believe that these things are true and I want to be able to teach these biblical ideas as true. Jesus's forgiveness of this woman. Um, so I want to teach the idea, but I don't want to just walk through like somehow this text is the same as the other texts around it. Yeah, and I think you, it would be worth pausing to just briefly articulate. Um, you know, some could some could could kind of um, respond and say, "Well, but it's in there, and it teaches forgiveness, which is a biblical principle, and it's about Jesus. So why don't you just preach it?" So why, if if, if I'm sure you've kind of discovered by now that, as it says, the earliest manuscripts don't include it. We conclude that, therefore, John didn't write it. Why are we not going to preach it with the same authority behind it that verse 52 has or following verse 12 has? Because I don't have the same confidence that the the specific story is true. Mm-hmm. So, again, I, I that's a weird question. Well, here's how I go to I'm it. I'm not trying to be weird about this. I, I, so CIY, Christ in youth, yeah. love them, godly men, 
and women running that ministry, they were doing a series. They wanted me to preach on, on forgiveness. And so one of my texts speaking at their conference was John seven fifty three three to 11. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to get into it. They, they, even the guys that were asked me to do it, they knew me. Right. And they weren't trying to set me up, but they're going, yeah, we want you to teach on forgiveness. And this is a beautiful story about forgiveness. And I went, okay, I'm not going to be weird about this. And especially when you're talking to like high school and college students, I'm not up there to get into a debate and an argument about textual transmissions and textual reliabilities. And so without, I don't think anybody in the room, except for maybe a few people who really knew me, I basically said, can I tell you a story? Ah, so you took out the thus saith the Lordness of reading the text. Yeah, Yeah. I did. I did. And a little bit because I've got to deal with somewhat, I guess, my own conscience, Mm -hmm. which is if you were to say to me, Jim, what do you believe about this? I believe that most likely I had to, quote unquote, if I had to bet, I'm like 63% sure that this event happened in some way. Yes. But you, uh, you, I would, I would assume, man, if this is not true, I'm gonna not going to know what to do with you. I would assume that you preach with the, uh, with borrowed authority. You, you preach with the authority of the text yeah. and you do so because this ha- this bears the mark of the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Totally. Right? And this part is not inspired by the Holy Spirit it, it, to the I best of our ability yeah, to discern. For that. the best of my ability to understand. And I'll tell you, if this was a if this was a, a section where, man, nowhere else in the Bible does it talk about Jesus's forgiveness of people. Yeah. I would be like, oh, my goodness. I, I, I don't know. I would literally be I'd say, hey, I don't think forgiveness is a big deal. But this text gives us a very compelling, powerful example of something that I would argue is powerfully and compellingly described in many other places. Yeah. His conversation with Peter about forgiving someone 70 times, seven times, it gets the same idea with the authority of the spirit. With, with, we, yeah. I would argue with a, just a, a clearer thus saith the Lord uh, than, than that is. So I don't want to be weird about it. And I'm not, I, I really am not going to argue uh, in that sense. I will discuss, but I'm not going to argue if somebody says, well, I really believe it's scripture. Okay. You can believe that. I mean, really you can believe that there yeah. are, there are people um, that, that, that believe that and have throughout history. I think it is interesting that we don't, and again, we're saying, we're saying with the, with the woman caught in adultery text, and then we'll add a very, very brief description of a, what the other famous one, which snake is, in, which is snake handling in Mark, but no Eastern father references this till the 10th century. So that would be early church fathers that wrote in Greek in Greek. Yeah. So in the East Constantinople in the Eastern church. So not the Western Catholic church, but more of the Eastern Eastern Orthodox church. And the Latin church picked it up earlier and started to in, in insert it, but still late. It Jerome, was, Jerome puts it in the Vulgate. So that's 400 ish ish. The church fathers start talking about it, but it, it, it is in none of the major commentaries of any of the church fathers until the fourth or fifth century. So they're not even, they're not even mentioning it. So, and then as it begins to happen, and this is what they don't know is they don't know is, is this an oral tradition? It, it's, it's found in a famous document, which is kind of like, translated the teachings that I believe was written in the mid, in the mid third century. Um, there seems to be some pretty clear references to Jesus forgiving a woman, and it's the the language seems to fit with this, not attributed to John. So that that is that is discussed, and that's where I would say to you that it could be an oral tradition, and that is why I'm on the other side of fifty percent convinced that it is most likely true. Yeah. You still have to give a where did this idea come from? John Chrysostom goes from verse fifty two to verse twelve. Yes, in his sermons in on John. Sermon on John, one of the biggest early church fathers. Yes, and he's preaching through the entire book of John. Skips his story. Skips it. 
And he's got a connection to John. Yeah. So uh, honestly, those those not a loose connection. So th- those things I think are very very helpful for us to say. Okay. So then who who do we believe it did it come from? Is it Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Mm-hmm. In the end, John's the one where it's found early. In the earliest manuscripts where it's found, it's actually found in the footnote. Mm-hmm. Like it began as a footnote. Yeah. They had like they had like air quotes around it yes. kind of thing. It's found, I believe, in five different locations within John's gospel and in Luke, once. and it is found in Luke twenty one. I believe after verse 38. Um, so th- for that reason, it just makes me go, huh, okay. Yeah. So what chances are you're listening to this podcast either because you're just kind of following it and it's the next podcast. We're taping this one early because what we want you to know is all of this um, as to why we are teaching on the biblical principle of forgiveness from um, the Lord's Prayer, mm-hmm. from Jesus's parabolic teaching, from Jesus's instruction to Peter, from Paul's admonition to the church at Ephesus um, or the church in Colossae. Jesus's restoration of Peter. Yes. So that's why we want we want to, you to understand that the idea is true. The idea stands alone. Um, and so that's why when when I preach this, I'm going to be definitely preaching on the idea. And I will even be telling the story. Yeah. of a woman caught in adultery and as a kind of a famous story that was handed down in the early in the early church that is true i can say that with virtually 100% reliability well, actually yeah. no 100% reliability yeah um i don't know if the first christians described it but i would assume if the if three generations or five generations or you know 200 years later they're talking about it it had to come from somewhere well and i think that when you look at the the textual analysts i'm going to start using that that title now the textual analysts they all say not the vast majority of them say not scripture but probably still ha- like an event that took place. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons that they're they're doing that is because the tradition is so geographically dispersed. It's yeah. coming from so yeah. many different areas that they're just like, yeah, a story like this gets around and has some staying power because it's it probably happened. Again, we don't have the Holy Spirit's inspired testimony to it. We have we have Not a later can... scribe who's who picked a spot and threw it in. Not and by the I... way, you pull it out and John seven fifty two flows into John eight twelve. Yeah, put perfectly. Your, put your hand over it and just go from seven twelve or seven fifty fifty two to eight twelve, and it fits perfectly. The other thing, so there's there's also two other ways in which, or two ways in which, when they're trying to come up with the, um, the to the best of their ability, what the original said, there is external evidence, which is get all the manuscripts and let's just kind of look at this somewhat, if we could say, kind of in a scientific way. Yeah. Although you still need to make some discernment pieces. How old do you think that document is? Mm-hmm. Where was it written? Which one do we believe is the oldest? And we believe that the oldest are the more reliable. So those are, and, I guess, are all presuppositions. So you need to be aware. Those it, are the decisions that they're making. I agree with that decision process. There were scribal schools that were just factually better than others. Like yes. the Alexandrian school in Northeast Africa is phenomenal. The Antiochian school, phenomenal. I was I was reading, we had an elders meeting last night, and I was going through, I was reading Psalm 106 from the, the, the Book of Common Prayer, and which is a translation. And I'm reading Psalm 106. And there were at times I would, I would literally, in my head, say something different than the text said because I thought it explained it better, mm-hmm. right? And I, it's not like I even went back to the Hebrew. I was just like, ah, it's kind of a weird wording. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, and I'm doing it on the fly. I know, you do it all the time. Yes, exactly. I really do it all the time. And I don't think I'm wrong in doing it. If someone's writing this down, though, I would go, whoa, 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 whoa. what are you doing? I'm writing it down. 
Okay, yeah, though no, that's I'll even say like when I'm preaching sometimes I'll go, hey, by the way, that's my translation. Yeah. I want you to know that's my translation. But I don't mind you writing it down, but you really need to put like in a in a translation, footnote. not copy. Yes. And this is Jim's idea. So it's not even my my idea is 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 does not have the same weight in my own head as the CSP. Well, even some of the <laughs> earliest scribes, like they say, we're we're air quoting things yes. or bracketing things. Like they have this other term for it. But they were indicating that this is an insertion. This yes. is not original. And they because they wanted to smooth it out. Yep. And certain schools did if it if it was complicated or if it was spelled wrong, right? Yeah. So let's say you let's say John spelt something wrong. Yeah. Would you clean it up for him? And there were certain scribal schools that say, yeah, we don't want John to look bad. I mean, he yeah. spelt that wrong. And there were other scribal schools saying, no, we're gonna Leave we're it. gonna write it the way it is. Yeah. So that is a little bit of what of what you're actually dealing with. That's why this the doxology was slapped onto the end of the Lord's Prayer because I'm sure some scribes like that's a really rough way to end a prayer. Yes. Like save us from eat. Okay, let's put let's take a nice. Conclusion there, and doesn't it sound? I mean, literally, you think about it, and 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 uh, and uh, protect us from the evil one. Yeah, right. And then all of a sudden, for thine is the kingdom. You almost have to go King James. For thine is the kingdom, <laughs> and the power and the glory. It's it's it literally sounds out of place. Yeah. So there's external evidence, the manuscripts. Then there's internal evidence. So let's take a look at the at the John account and see if the language and if the story. Let's see if it fits contextually. Let's see if this language is used. And I'm telling you, there are so many unique words found mm-hmm. in John seven fifty three three to eleven. The word scribes never appears anywhere else in John's gospel. Like it just doesn't fit. There are I think other 13 other words that are not found anywhere in John's gospel. And John's gospel is the easiest to translate. It is the most the simplest vocabulary. It is the simplest vocabulary and then all of a sudden it radically changes. Which I wonder radically if that's why changes. at some point some copyist or scribe is like, I wonder if this is Luke. <laughs> Slap it on the end of Luke. Yeah, but this doesn't sound like John anymore. Yeah. So that's the that becomes the that becomes the re, so that but that's internal evidence. You need to realize that um, there's there's lots of things that it's so it's more subjective, mm. right? It just it doesn't sound like John, and the words don't sound like John, which I think has some credibility. I think mm. you need to be able to listen to that, but but be very careful believing that because you don't think it sounds like John might not be the best thing to hang your hat on. But if you take all the external evidence and all the internal evidence, that is where I say. I love the idea of God forgiving. I even, I really do. I've learned to actually appreciate this story more and more mm. and uh, argue for its textual veracity less and less. Yep. And that's where we're at. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I've, as I've, I've taught through John a number of times in different classes, I've never, I've never, um, preached this section in from the pulpit i've never been asked to preach this section but i've always kind of as i've taught through this part of john i've always just kind of paused to comment that um i i will in some sense respectfully decline to ever preach this if asked uh or preach it authoritatively or do so creatively yeah. kind of like what you did yeah. at ciy and, and honestly that's why I, at ciy nobody even knew what i was doing or trying to do i felt like i've had a certain degree of integrity that i wanted to have and i knew that later on i'd be speaking about this text so well what when you preached it you acted like it was and like so i don't i want to be able to no, go back and listen to that yeah in front of sunnybrook a congregation that i love and i feel like i need to be honest about where i really think this fits and how it fits in yeah. i think this is a oral tradition that probably is true mm-hmm. that john did not include and i'm going to preach it that way and therefore but john does talk about and so does matthew mark luke john paul james peter so the forgiveness of god to those who have sinned and the pardoning of those who have erred and jesus's grace and kindness and even call 
to, to, to kind of this new life, confronting self-righteousness. Mm. Right? There's so many beautiful parts of the narrative. The, the thing that I find fascinating is, and I, I did a, another deep dive recently on this, I, I think I know why the great scholars, D.A. Carson, right? Some, some serious, I'm so de- grateful for the ministry. I found it fascinating that they, I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's scripture. I don't think it's scripture. No, they don't think they don't say I don't think it's true. John didn't write it. That's yeah, what they John say. didn't write it. I don't think it's I don't think it's scripture. I don't think it's scripture. But I totally believe it to be true. And I'm like, that last statement. Why are you saying it? And here's what I think they're doing that I can appreciate. I think they're saying it because they're trying to be sensitive to people who, if you just throw it away, lose confidence in the Bible. And I appreciate that. I do. I get that. Can I be your reader on that Sunday? I'll read the text and then I'll say the word of some scribe from somewhere. <laughs> and then I will say, thanks be to God. <laughs> or you could end it with, all, with a thank, thanks be to God. You get it with a question, right? The word of the, word of the Lord? <laughs> Is it the word of the Lord? Thanks be to Holman Publishing? Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's what I thought we needed to talk about. Anything that you want to do without getting into the specifics with Mark? Yeah, with Mark, or do we want to say that for no? It's, it's I mean, it's much the same thing. I think I think it actually suffers from some of the same uh, scribal concerns that the Lord's Prayer does. Is you take away um, Mark chapter sixteen verses nine through the end, um, which I don't believe Mark wrote. I believe he ends his gospel with the women running away terrified. I think at some point some scribes are like this is not a good ending, man. <laughs> This is just like I feel like there's some more, and so he adds some stuff that, and I think in in the long ending of Mark, it is it is clearly out of step with other oh, parts of scripture. So goodness. it's even it's even kind of self evident that yeah. this doesn't Got jive with the rest of the gospel. But one thing that I would uh, like to just mention, we are, we 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 said earlier that there are um, somewhere between twenty six thousand and thirty thousand manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts. Uh, for the New Testament. And that number might not be very meaningful to you, but one of the reasons that it's so meaningful to me is because it betrays how we come to the biblical text with a greater tenacity than we do other uh, yeah. important texts because no one really questions the, um, or none of us, maybe some some literature scholars do, but none of us really question when we read something like Homer's Iliad, whether or not this is like yeah. a, a, a fair representation of what was originally put down on paper. We don't or, even or care. We don't, yeah, we don't even care. The number, like the manuscript evidence that says that we have what he actually wrote is like in the single digits. Yeah. It's like eight or nine in the world. And we're just like, yeah, that's what he wrote. And then we're like, I don't know. <laughs> 30,000 manuscripts seems yeah. like a lot. Um, and literally, they're, they're getting down to the exact order mm-hmm. of it and the exact spelling of every word. One thing I did do as I looked up the date of Codex Sinaiticus, it is in the um, in the three hundreds, yeah, three fifty ish. And wh- what why it was so valuable is um, that's when it was written. They and they obviously found it much later than that. But um, you get a, a, a full New Testament manuscript. I think it says uh, forty four hundred large leaves of yeah. parchment survive um, from Which the are written on leather. Yeah, yeah. So, so they're not from it's the fourth century. It's not paper, so it doesn't degrade as so it easily. It doesn't degrade as quickly. Um, but it's dated to the, to the middle of the fourth century, which puts it five hundred years earlier than the other oldest complete New Testament manuscript. And so, it's almost like you get to go back and so far into. And that is the same thing with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the famous Scroll of Isaiah. You get to. Uh, I mean, that Scroll of Isaiah predated Jesus. Oh yeah. 
and so they didn't find that until the 1940s. Yeah, and it confirmed, which is it, it 300 really, so years ways, after the new, the King James version was translated. It, it really confirmed the some of the original readings as not being altered very much, if at all. Yeah, um, which again just shows us the reliability and the trustworthiness of the scriptures. So. Providence of God. So hope that um, podcast, I think it was a little longer, but I, I think there's just a lot here. So break it up into sections. Well, you're at the end of it. I, oh, I guess I hope, it, I hope it was helpful. <laughs> and honestly, let me just say this. I, we, we, we say this a lot, and it's not just Ryan and I. I think almost I think anyone on staff could help you walk through some of these questions that you might have. If you know people who just don't trust the, the Bible and they don't trust it because John 5, 4 is missing or because Jim didn't preach through this and therefore they can't trust it, you need to have a conversation about what that really means. And we're available to walk those things through because we believe in the inerrant word of God, the trustworthiness and the authoritative word of God. Um, uh, I hope I'm willing to die for it. So I definitely have the conviction that I should. And if I don't, shame shame on me. I for will not heap willing the to shame die. on you. You always do that. We love you guys.